You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. This is John Seforic, and we're teaching you how to be a wealthy gardener on the Earn and Invest podcast. There were a lot of tears that year. There was a lot of falling asleep at the breakfast table. I was working maybe 120 hours a week, six to seven days, all year long. Sometimes I would stay up 36 hours at a time. It was my first year of my residency in internal medicine, the so-called internship year. And it was difficult. It was difficult physically. It was difficult emotionally. It was probably the hardest thing I ever faced. What were you doing September 11th, 2001? Well, I was in the bone marrow transplant unit at Washington University facing death and what felt like combat every single day. I was so withdrawn from life that I didn't even understand the importance of the Twin Towers falling. And I felt lucky. Some people would call it a sacrifice, but it didn't feel like a sacrifice to me. It felt like the exact thing I was supposed to be doing at the time. And it wasn't just that year because I had spent four years in college staying at the library while my friends were at football games. And I had spent four years of medical school with my books cracked open at 1 a.m. when everyone was out at the bars. And then three years of residency. And when I got out and was a practicing attending physician, I was still working 12-hour days and getting called at 3 a.m. in the morning anyway. And looking back, Even after all these years, even after deciding that maybe medicine was not my only path, I would do it all again. It was worth it. I learned so many things and grew so much as a person. And now as I'm older, I start to think about the other gardens in my life. What if I had tended them as rigorously as I did the house of medicine? What if I had tended my personal relationships and my hobbies and my finances with such exquisite care as I had in becoming a doctor? Well, maybe then I would have been a wealthy gardener. Well, maybe then I would have been the wealthiest gardener of them all. 
John Sephoric is a chiropractor. He's a real estate maven. And yes, he's the author of The Wealthy Gardener. Just to kind of give you some insight in how podcasts are made, I got John's book in the mail on Friday, and I knew I was going to be interviewing him today on Monday. So over the weekend, I dove into it, and I have to tell you, I got all riled up. I started writing out lists of things I want to do and goals that I wanted to accomplish. And I started to visualize so many things ahead of me. And John, I have to tell you, my wife and kids really want to thank you for getting me all excited over the weekend. Thank you so much, Doc. I have to say that that was quite an introduction and you're kind of leaving me speechless right off the bat. So, wow, nice story behind all this. And before we even get into all of it, you know, the book is called The Wealthy Gardener, and I've talked about on this podcast quite a bit how I'm pretty financially secure. So this book really spoke to me, even though finances really aren't something I feel like I need to grow much with at the moment. So I found it interesting that we talk and you talk a lot about finances in the book, but I really felt like I connected with it on so many other parts of life outside of finances. I get that a lot. I get that a lot. I, in fact, the book, you know, in terms of a little bit of background, it was written for my son after I have achieved financial freedom myself. So I felt the importance of passing down the lessons I learned along the way. I certainly didn't expect to teach a person like you anything new, but I, I think that we can remind ourselves all the time of the timeless principles that we have to keep in mind so often. And so I would say, it's, it's impressive to me that you find the gold in the story, the gold in the, in the information, because that was my life. I tried to collect as much as I could and put it into one book. And there's no, no doubt, you know, that's a father's effort. And you talk about a sacred effort, how you gave so much to being an MD and so much. I have friends that are anesthesiologists and orthodontists, and I know your story well. And I probably didn't have the maturity at such a young age to do what you guys did. It's one of the things I value so much. And to be honest with you, you kind of scare me with your story because my daughter is going into medicine and I'm just going to cross my fingers and pray to God, right? But thank you for that intro. Uh, the Wealthy Gardener was meaningful to me because I was writing that story for my son. Let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Is it true that you had to lose part of your finger to write this book? This is not on video, right? But if it is, here's the picture right here. Yeah. So I always... You know, I, I don't, I have friends that are MDs and they're not very nice people. I can tell you this. They tell me that now that it's going to be hard for me to count to 10 because I have half a finger. So yeah, I uh, definitely got this finger cut off. The story was that I, I really wanted three months to outline this book I, and I didn't have the courage to back off. Kind of like your story, you said that extracting yourself from a practice, it's not that easy, right? And so I wanted to do it. I, I can preach about the courage necessary to do that. But boy, I tell you what, when the rubber meets the road, it was so hard. It was so difficult for me to pull out of that one. And I just didn't have it. I, I can say I failed, but I wanted three months. And sure enough, the long and short story of it in a chapter called Intangible Forces is that I needed three months. I imagined three months. And sure enough, I got my finger cut off and a bunch of bones broken. And the surgeon told me, okay, pal, you can't do anything for three months now. I thought, wow, I have to sit around for three months. Be careful what you ask for, right? 
Yeah, at the time you were going to snake a drain, right? In one of your rental properties. <laughs> Jeez, thank you so much, Doc, for bringing out the nitty gritty. Yes. <laughs> the funny story was I went into the uh, emergency room, towel wrapped around my hand, hadn't even looked at it yet. And the, the ER doctor says, okay, were you, were you around anything dirty? Well, yeah, sewer line drain, I guess so. So that sets up all the shots and the, and that sets up a funny story. But yes, I was around something dirty. Thanks for putting that out. So the book is The Wealthy Gardener. And I feel like the beginning of your story about writing this book happened somewhere around 2000 to 2002, the tech bubble. What happened? Well, what happened? Yeah, that's, that's somewhere along adulthood for me. You're right. You did the math. So how does a person get, become a chiropractor? This is, how, this is my story. My dad went to see a chiropractor when I was 19 years old. I tagged along. He was one of those guys that crawls in the office and gets well and, and has, is pain-free that night. And so I'm 19 years old and I witnessed this. And, I, and so this is my time to say, okay, aha, I figure out how I'm going to you know, serve humanity on this earth. But no, that's not really the story because I tagged along with him and I saw the chiropractor's part-time hours. And then I looked over there and I saw a boat in the backyard sitting in a trailer. And my eyes went from the boat to the part-time hours, from the part-time hours to the boat. And six years later, I'm a chiropractor. And this is the extent of how I got into what I got into. You know, I graduated with a 200000 worth of student debt in today's dollars. So there weren't a lot of boats and there weren't a lot of part-time hours in my life. So yeah, around the time that you talked about, I was frustrated. And I went through the dot-com bubble burst. I lost what little money I had. I still had a lot of student debt and it was just tough. I had a family and two kids by then. And so I set a rather large goal. I read a book called uh, Thinking Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. It's a classic. And that book allowed me to think a little bigger than I would have been thinking. And so I set this large goal for retirement. I wanted $240,000 in retirement income by the age of 50. And that's what I did at the age of around that time you're talking about. And I went to battle and I did go to battle for the next 20 years. And I retired at the age of 49 with that goal met. So retirement or early retirement was the original goal? You know what? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I would say that that's true, but not necessarily for the reasons one might think. It's not like you, you know, I had this desire to sit on a beach and do nothing. Not that. It's more like, do I want to have control of my hours? Yeah, absolutely. I learned real early on that I'm living in the land of the free, but it's not too free when you're strapped by money. And so all of a sudden, I don't know, man, my soul just longed for a little bit more control in the hours of life. I also really needed to protect and provide for my family. It's when you're living so close to that line of the edge, I'll call it, you're really not prepared to help your family in times of crisis. I needed more security, I needed more freedom. I wanted to have, to have more power over my life. Those are the bigger motivations to me. I feel like the first step in any major journey is realizing that something is wrong. And between 2000 and 2002, you realized certainly something was wrong. The next and maybe a harder part is to decide what to do about that. Real estate seemed to be a huge part of your how from the beginning. How did you get involved in real estate? Well, it, you're right. How do you go from a goal into the how, into the means, into the, you know, how do you make it happen? Honestly, real estate was just the closest thing in my backyard that made sense that would produce passive income. Keeping in mind that my goal was not to store 10 million in the bank, 
my goal was to store, to have this river coming at me that would come at me so that I wouldn't have to think about money. That was my goal. And so real estate is a means to that. In my neck of the woods, uh, cash flow is very possible. You know, I'm a, I live in a small town outside of Pittsburgh where the price of real estate compared to the price of rent is a really good balance. And so there was an opportunity here that might not exist in New York or San Francisco or other high-priced places, you know. So in my backyard, real estate was the obvious means for a person to generate passive income. And so that's that set up a course of me buying a couple single families and just kind of towing my way into the water slowly and seeing if this was for me. It wasn't a big decision. It was a gradual decision that okay, this is okay, this is okay, this is okay. And you just kind of tow yourself forward until you finally commit. I want to jump to the book, The Wealthy Gardener. Talk to me about how you came up with the metaphor of the gardener and how it relates to finances and wealth in general. The Wealthy Gardener. So I've always loved the parable of between a garden and the representation of that metaphor for a person's time on earth. I was always influenced highly by Earl Nightingale, and he always spoke of, you know, a, a farm and a, a. There was a pastor once that walked past the farm, and the pastor leaned against the fence and saw the the manicured fences, the the painted barns, the the, the driveway with the rows of trees, and he leaned there just envying this scene. Finally, the farmer came over to say hello, and the pastor says, "You know, my my God, this is what a beautiful sight this is. God sure has blessed you with this beautiful farm." And the farmer says, you know, he has, and I'm thankful, but you should have seen this place when he had it all to himself. <laughs> and I, I've always loved that story. It's, it's such a great painting of a picture of what our life is about. You know, yeah, we have a plot of land. That's our garden. We can do with it what we want. And that's our choice. You know, gardeners are strange little creatures. They're, they're either imagining this plot of land looking like something that it doesn't look like now. And they're learning whatever they have to learn. They don't care. They enjoy learning. And then they go to work. And, you know, these guys are just digging. They're always sweating. They're always dirty. And I just like the metaphor of that gardener because even while they work, they're also very aware of a mysterious force in the background that helps the plants grow. And so I like gardeners. And so a wealthy gardener, well, that has to do with valuable time. But, yeah, that's, that's what I did. That's why I wrote that. Your story, as well as the book, is full of metaphors and stories, and it's very rich in that sense. And that's the language of people who really concentrate on mindset, whereas those who like to write about tactics, and I'm sure you could have written a book about tactics on how to real estate invest, aren't nearly as flowery. Tell me about the decision to be more mindset oriented in your book as opposed to more tactical. I would say that you're 80 to 90% mindset in this book and maybe 10% tactical more towards the end of the book. I agree. And I think that's the importance of it, to be honest with you. I think it's, it's very easy to understand math. I think the challenge of wealth, the challenge of the th things that are hard in this world, that's about behavior, that's about psychology. And so for me, I can understand how you get from point A to point B, C, D, and E. A lot of people understand that, but it's not about that. It's about who can, you know, the starters are common, but who can finish? And sometimes the finish is about fortitude. It's about continuity and consistency. 
who can do that? It's almost like I always, I always liken it to weight loss. We all know, I think we, we have enough ideas of how to lose weight and how to be in shape and how to, it's getting yourself to do it. That's the challenge of life. And same, the same thing occurs with a lot of times with wealth. I'm not discounting the fact that we can make dumb decisions with our money. We certainly can. But the challenge I can tell you for the middle class, and this is where I lived and, and worked my entire life, is getting that money to do something dumb with. Like we, we have to earn it. We have to keep a surplus supply. It's about profitability. It's about earning. It's about, well, quite frankly, there's a lot of virtues that I had to overcome. I can speak for myself. I had to gain a lot of virtues in order to become wealthy. And so I had to grow a lot. It's about personal growth and mass self-mastery. Absolutely. The math wasn't hard. It was the self-mastery that required so much of me. In the book, you talk a lot about sacrifice. And you just mentioned the word fortitude. And I really connect with that because if you ask me how I made it through medical school and residency, I had to grind it out a little bit. It was just hard work. I had to put the hours in. When I talk to young people today, especially those who are even interested in financial independence and building wealth, many of them feel like sacrifice is a bad word. They feel like you shouldn't have to grind it out. You should be able to find things that cause you passion. Don't put in those 10 years of working hard at a desk. Find a better way sooner. What do you think about that thought process? <laughs> I think you're going to get me in trouble right now because <laughs> that, that was my plan, by the way. Yeah. Thank you a lot. That's a terrible question. You know, you have these, you have guests, I'm sure, that say, that's a great question. Well, I'm going to tell you, that's a terrible question because <laughs> it's, it's going to force me down a road, but I, I'll, I'll say it. I agree. I think that we are, and I don't, I'm not sure that we're all just, we haven't chosen that. We, we've kind of heard a lot of advice that's been poured down our throat to. So I'll say that a lot of people have been inundated with that idea, follow your passion. But when you say that you are a little bit, you, you sacrificed a little bit, I know your story. Some of my best friends, and I, I speak of the chapter in my book on sacrifice. I speak of my friend who became an anesthesiologist. And I mean, that guy, at the end of it all, he said just what you said in the, in the beginning. I, I'll, I'll phrase this just the same. He says, I will never want to go through that again but I'm glad I did. And that's just what you said at the start, you know, that rung true to me. That's what sacrifice is. The things that you look back and you say, well, everything that's hard is earned through some sort of sacrifice. And what do I say about that? I say balance can be a little bit dangerous. I say that following your passion can be a little bit dangerous. I say that the, the, the goal of life is not happiness. It's not. The pursuit of happiness is a great term that we throw into our our country here. Yeah. Well, if you want to just pursue it all your life, okay, good, because that's what it's going to be. It's a really hard thing to grasp, but maybe the pursuit of satisfaction. I love that idea, you know, over pleasure, forget pleasure. The world wants to know what, what you can do, what can you contribute? You know, that doesn't always have to do with your pleasure, you know, and your passion. So yeah, I get myself in a little bit in trouble there. People want to think that they can have it all, meaning they can have success without sacrifice. You can be the best without sweating. You can be a, have a perfect physique without exercise or eating right. It just doesn't work that way. And we're painted this picture sometimes, I think, by books that want to tell us that it's easy and people don't mind hard work as long as it's easy. Yeah. Coming from someone who's done it, you've done it. 
all my MD friends that have done it. You know, so many people that in the, in the middle class who are working their way out, they've done it. And the whole idea of passion is dangerous. It's just dangerous. It's a delusion. Certainly, I'm a big believer in something I call front-loading the sacrifice, means doing that hard work up front so that you have to do less of it later. Mm. But I also agree with the sense that this idea of work-life balance or even unending passion at the beginning of your career is really a luxury for the already wealthy. And most of us just unfortunately aren't there when we start our careers. I can tell you, I certainly wasn't. And the way I had to wrap my head around it, I'll tell you the truth is I I read a book called Do What You Love, The Money Will Follow. I was in my early 20s. I went down the wrong road. And what happens is it makes you miserable. It makes you see that the normal problems of life, the normal problems of every job, when you have this delusion that life is supposed to be a full bliss, joyful ride, you'll you'll find such a discontentment with normal because normal is problems. If you don't have a job, Without problems, you don't have a job. And so it just sets up a delusion of expectation that creates misery. That's what I say. No doubt about it. But yeah, I can't agree more. I think we should be thinking more in terms of contribution. And those are the things that will enrich your soul. And you know, if you gain satisfaction, it feels a lot like happiness anyway. That's what you probably can't tell the difference. But you can catch, can, you can earn satisfaction. You know, that's what I say. It's a lot easier and it's the pursuit of happiness can be a lifelong quest of delusion and make you miserable. You mentioned just a bit ago this idea that people expect that they won't run into problems in their career. And you mentioned something in the book called sour adversity, which was a wonderful term because it really in some ways explains some of what I was feeling in medicine at particular times. What is sour adversity? And tell us a little bit about that moment in your career that was worst when you were dealing with it? Sour adversity is not my term. That's a Shakespeare term. You know, he says something like sour adversity is the greatest way to learn. He's, He's referring to sour adversity. Can I ask you to elaborate on the point where you say my point of my career where... There was a point, I believe, when you got audited by an insurance company, and you call it one of the lows of your career, and it's a good example of sour adversity and why it's important. Absolutely. So I think we're so inundated by books that will tell us things like there's a silver lining around every cloud, and you know this too shall pass. Certainly, we're going through challenging times now, and everybody wants to put this nice little wrapper around it and tell you, don't worry so much. Well, there are times in life where it is just a sour adversity, and sometimes the challenge of life is just to survive, just to endure the pain long enough that it does pass and it doesn't break you. You know, you have to survive the point where people say sometimes that what doesn't break you and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, that's, that's not true. Sometimes what doesn't kill you does break you. It makes people bitter. It makes them... And so if you're asking me about my time, I was facing an audit that was never won in the state of Pennsylvania. I was facing it due to unfair circumstances. Anybody would agree to that. In fact, I don't think they even are allowed to do these audits anymore, but back then they did. And the insurance company could come at you. And they came at me because I got very busy as a chiropractor in achieving my goals. And because I was busy, I stood out as a red flag to the insurance company. Well, they walked in my office and said, how about we get back in normal ranges of every other chiropractor or we're going to audit you? Well, the unsaid threat of that is that they're going to levy a fine against me of somewhere around $300,000. That's how it works. And no other chiropractor has ever won it. And so 
I said, this, wait a minute, the reason, I'm, the reason I'm earning so much more is because I'm working so much more. I leave my office after 9 p.m. every night. Other chiropractors are going home at 9 o'clock. Come on. I said, well, it's up to you. And, you know, I went home and I thought about it. And I said, screw this. I'm not doing anything wrong. There's no way I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to be cowed by this company coming in here. And t- okay, so I stood my ground. Two months later, I got an audit. And all of a sudden, I'm facing the loss of everything. And so, yeah, my hair's falling out. The lateral sides of my eyebrows fell out. I found my, my worst adversity. I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't sleep without drugs. It was terrible. I thought I was going to lose everything. But the key that I found to that time, you know, in terms of what's the lesson learned, this is a book of lessons. For me, it sounds stupid unless you've gone, gone through it, but you come down to the most elemental aspects of life and you realize that this will not kill me. And believe it or not, that was a revelation to me because it did feel like it was going to kill me. It was going to take away all my money, all my kids' education, any progress I've had in life. It was going to reduce me to a, a stock, stocking shelves at Walmart. I was going to do that. So yeah, I had to make it through that time acquiesce to the facts, get myself together, and just accept that, okay, this isn't going to kill me. And what doesn't kill me, I can recover from. And sometimes it's not that glorious. But long story short, to get to your story, I did win the audit. I was the first person in Pennsylvania to ever win it. I moved on. I, I shrunk my clinic. I, I reduced the hours. They won. I brought it down to normal. And I went into those same hours. I started using those same hours into real estate. And so I shifted, I adjusted my plans and it worked out actually better in the end. But boy, I tell you what, if you would have told me at the time that, you know, this too shall pass and don't worry, everything happens for a reason. I might've grabbed a two by four and hit you with it because I wasn't in the mood to hear that kind of thing right now. You know, so that's my story. It doesn't, it wouldn't kill you. And there's a, there's a point inside you that the inner light that they can't touch and if they can't touch that, you can, you can recover. That's what I found. For those people who are not familiar with the insurance and Medicare audit process, it actually can be quite frightening. They come in and they'll look at a small percentage of your charts, maybe pull 10 or 15. And if they decide that you made an error and overbilled by, let's say, 15 or 20%, they will then look at all your billings for the year or even a five-year period and ask for all that money back. And this can be devastating to a practice, whether it be chiropractic or physician. And it is one of those fears that many of us who are in the healthcare system walk around with. I find it so interesting because I went through very similar things. And I love this term sour adversity because nothing makes that good and going through it will never be something you want to do again. And yet that adversity taught you something really important about your practice. Uh, Part of that was deciding that maybe it was time to pivot some of those hours to something where you wouldn't be having as much risk. And that's exactly what I did with medicine too. I realized that there was a certain risk associated with running my own practice and instead shifted to a contractor model where I was being paid by hours by a company and was not billing the insurance companies or Medicare at all. So I understand completely why that caused you to pivot. And I think it's a kind of a key point about what sour adversity is. It's never fun, but you can learn from it. You know, I agree. I, I think the principle, you know, you're always trying to learn by principles, right? 
the principle for me at that time was to stay fixed on my goal somehow, but flexible with my plans. Right? Stubborn on goals, flexible on plans. So once I survived that and I wasn't dead in the water when it was over, now what? How do I re? How do, what? How do I replan? And still keep that goal of two hundred and forty thousand. Because man, my I I'll, I wish I could say I was brave. I wasn't. I my knees were shaking. I was racked. My hair was falling out. <laughs> it doesn't get much worse. And so I wasn't brave. I was scared to death. But I've pivoted, like you said, and I was flexible to plans. And that's the, that's the key principle to that one. I want to transition a little bit and talk about another topic that comes up over and over again in The Wealthy Gardener, and it's this idea of universal intelligence. And let me give you an example from my life, and then I'll talk about an example from yours. When I was in my medical practice at that point when I was getting burned out and starting to think about retirement, and my intentions were to find a way to improve my life, all of a sudden I got this phone call from this doctor named Jim Dolly who sent me a book that answered the question that I had been mulling over. And in your life, you had been trying to figure out the time necessary to write the book. And then of course you had this accident and your doctor tells you you can't do any manual labor for three months. You can't go on being a chiropractor. And the light went off in your head and said, okay, this was the universe telling me that it was time for me to write this book. Talk a little bit about universal intelligence. It smacks of spirituality, which I have nothing wrong with. I said smacks, but actually I, <laughs> I'm quite a spiritual person. But many would say that that type of talk doesn't really have a place in a personal finance book. Yeah, many would say that, wouldn't they? But I have to write my own truth. And when you write a book for your son, do you really care about the many? You really don't. What are you speaking to? If you're talking to your children, screw the many. I want him to understand my lessons, my take on my lessons. And I can tell you that I have seen coincidences so often that it leads me to be a believer. And I realize that we are talking spirituality. What is the, yeah, what is the unseen force? What is the spiritualized side of life? No doubt about it. I do think that there is a connection to all of this. At least there is for me. So how do I answer that question? I can tell you this, that I've always, ever since I was young, I've always, uh, once I learned through Napoleon Hill, through that book, how to focus your mind, the most important part of every day of mine is a time I sit for 20 minutes, I close my eyes, I focus on my goal, and I try to experience that goal right now as if it's already happened. Now, we always hear this talk from the law of attraction and these people that will sit on couches and imagine checks coming in the mail. And to be honest with you, it gives the whole idea of spirituality a black eye because there are those of us who will mix spirituality with hard work. You know, the saying is God will give every bird its food, but he doesn't throw it in the nest, right? So what is the unseen force? I, if you watch The Matrix, right? Do you ever watch The Matrix? This, this world is governed by machines. I personally choose to believe that this world is governed. I'm not looking to get into a philosophical discussion here. But I choose to believe that it's governed by a benevolent force. And I can tap into that force, whether you consider that the collective unconscious, like some people have said in the past, I think that was a young, young idea. 
whether you think that's the universal intelligence, whether you think it's God, Jesus, Muhammad, Yahweh, whatever, I don't care. I can't, I, there's something about it for me where I can produce uh, a mindset where things come to me or people come to me or the right book comes to me, the right person calls me. I cannot tell you how commonly those coincidences show up in my own life. And let's say this for those who are, who are just hardcore cynics, fine, you still will not go wrong by focusing your mind on what you want, believing in faith, trying to generate some sort of emotion towards that. Let's say you don't believe in God. It will still produce results for you. It'll, it'll help focus your mind, focus your work, streamline your thoughts. That's all good, even if you don't believe in God. So I see nothing to lose in the whole process myself. For people who want a more grounded explanation, I love to use the term setting your intentions. So I'm a big believer that if you want things to go well, if you act with the right intentions, generally things will work out. So by meditating, for instance, or by visualizing, what you're doing is setting your own internal intentions. And when you do that, you tend to be open to the solutions that maybe were there in front of you or the gifts that were given to you by serendipity. And you recognize them and grasp them and use them in a way you normally wouldn't have if you hadn't set your intentions and been open to it. Either way, it works. Like I don't, I don't ask anybody to adopt my ideas of spirituality. And I do that in the book back and forth. You, if you read the book, you'll see that I, I've, I've I've struggled with this like because I, uh, at the core, I am a very rational-minded person. At the other side of it, dang, how did this happen? It did require a lot of lucky breaks that just came out of the woods for me. And my, maybe like you said, it's just that they were there all along and I didn't see them until I focused my mind on it. I can recognize that's a possibility. Sure. But there is never a downside, no matter how you look at this, no matter what angle, if you focus your mind every day there's no downside and there's only upside. So John, I'm going to ask your permission to give a spoiler here because I think it's a good question. Can I tell one of the secrets of the book so that I can ask you a question? Boy, that's like an open-ended, that's like a blank check. Hey, do you mind if I just sign a check over? Well, I don't know what you're going to say. Yeah, go ahead. So I, we, can, we can always edit this out if you don't like <laughs> it, but I think it's a good question. No. So the spoiler alert is that at the end of the book, the wealthy gardener, the main character, or one of the main characters, the teacher throughout this dies. And while I take to heart all the lessons the wealthy gardener taught throughout the book, it hits me that some may read this book and say, did the wealthy gardener get it right? I mean, this guy lived based on all these principles, amassed a huge amount of wealth and pretty much died with all of that wealth in the bank or maybe in his property. One could argue that truly winning is being able to enjoy that wealth to its fullest. You never want to be the richest man on the cemetery plot. Did the wealthy gardener get it right? You know, the wealthy gardener took that question to his grave. Did he get it right? And, you know, the book does have several themes in it. And this isn't a Disney story. You know, I wanted to, you know, keep this in mind. When you write a book like mine and you write a parable type story along with the life lessons and timeless principles, 
I am taking a tremendous risk because a lot of these books turn out to be stupid and juvenile <laughs> and asinine and they, they can bring ridicule upon the, I understood what I was signing up for. So yeah, is there some, is, is there hardship in the story? Yes. Are there good consequences and bad consequences to decisions? Yes. And I, you know what? I don't like to ever say in the end, this is what you must do. You'll notice in the story, there's not one part of that book where I said, this is what you must do. I said, this is what you might consider and then make up your own mind. I say this, but the closest I come to an absolute statement in that whole book is I say that you can choose whatever you want, but it is your duty, your duty to choose. That's what I say is important. It's important to live a life of intentionality and you get to choose whatever you want, but it's important to choose. That's what the wealthy gardener did. Now we can always look at one another and say, did we get it right? But aren't we a little bit arrogant to think that we have the judgment to decide whether another person gets it right or not? So no, I don't think that's the case. I'll give you something to think about and then people can decide whatever they want. I felt like in the book, The Wealthy Gardener, there were three main protagonist type voices. There was the wealthy gardener himself, the teacher. There was Jimmy, the student who had taken some wrong turns in life, but was trying to make things better. And then there was you, the narrator. I'm wondering who you personally identify with more, the wealthy gardener or Jimmy in this story? You know, that's a terrible question. That's the second time you've now said that to me. You know, I, I have, I have, I, I have uh, guys that I will cycle with and we approach these hills and they say, that's a great hill. And I say, by great, you mean terrible, right? And yes, yes, they mean terrible. Now, by that, I mean hard. I think what, if you, I don't know if you can write a book uh, without a little piece of you being in each character. You know, you're certainly supposed to write about that which you know, and God knows I've tried to do that. You know, I love the uh, Warren Buffett saying where he, he pinches his thumb and his forefinger together to create his little zero and says, this is my area of competence and I stay within this little circle. Do I have some, some commonality with the wealthy gardener? Absolutely. I, I could not have written that character without it. Do I have the, uh, the ambition of Jimmy as a 20-year-old where you're just trying to figure out your life and you have so much ambition, but you don't know how to put it all to use? Absolutely, I, I do. Do I have some characteristics of Jared who just couldn't get his time figured out? He was a talker in life. Yeah, early on in life, I've, I've struggled with that, sure. So I have a little bit in common with all these people. And it's, all, it's a piece of you when you write a book like this. So but the funny thing is I, I always, uh, I get this thing every now and then people say, why, the, why is there no females in your book? I said, I like females, don't worry. I just don't understand them. So I couldn't write about a female, Okay. And I try to make a joke out of it, but I, I do see, I can't answer that I'm one or the other. I'm, the truth is I'm a little of both, no question. Let me ask another terrible, aka hard question. If I read correctly, your brother died unexpectedly at the age of 52. How did that play a role in your concepts of wealth and the writing of this book? You know what? I think that sometimes you do... Certainly, whenever you come into he's my own, only brother. Am I supposed to think that wealth is wrong and enjoy the day? You know, certainly there will be people that will say that, look, look, it's proof that time is so short. 
you shouldn't work for tomorrow. It's all vanity. Enjoy the day. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I have a family. What about the family? Is it, is it not best for me to just give what I can give in this world? How does anybody know my ambition? See, I think that's what you have to follow is your own innate ambition, whatever that is, you know, for you. That's, that's an invisible force for me. I, I have to follow that or else I'll, I'll have regrets at the end of my life. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be 18-hour days like you're speaking of in, in medicine, which, by the way, I just, I bow to. I mean, that, that's, that sacrifice is admirable. And then also is the ability for you to think and say and choose. Just like we said, it's, it's your ability to choose and it's your right to choose. But those are the kind of things I want at the end of my life. Yes. Am I going to die because I, I witnessed his death? Yes. And that gives me even more reason to say, I just want to choose my life forward. I want to give what I can to this to humanity. Whatever instinct we have that we want to give back to humanity, we all have this. So let's just ride that horse we're given and, and do the best we can with whatever gifts we're blessed with. That to me, yeah, I'll, I'll ride into the sunset with a to-do list on my pocket and, and die unfinished any day. That's my goal. I find it interesting you talk about this to-do list and it helps bring me back to a point that we started with at the beginning of this interview when I said to you that I got a lot out of this book and I'm financially independent already. And when I think of you, you undertook this incredibly difficult thing, this writing of this book after you were already financially independent, after you in some senses had already lived up to the promise of the wealthy gardener. I know you say you wrote this book for your son, but I'm wondering if you wrote it to help you decide where to go next with your life. It seems to me that the philosophy there talks a lot more about taking life's direction as opposed to accumulating monetary wealth. Can't agree more. But monetary wealth will certainly give you the ability to choose directions and options. So there is a tie in there. So yes, did I, did I write it for my son? No question. To be honest with you, I could not have done it without him. You know, I, I, I would write for every Sunday. He was in college at the time and I would just, I would give it all for 50 hours a week. And then we'd talk about maybe one or two chapters. And it was almost like, you know, signpost to signpost to signpost every Sunday. That's what got me through it. Uh, so I could have never done this sacrifice without it. I also found that I, I've always found this curious that I don't care who you are. When you're retired, you'd probably, you'd probably agree with this. When you, when you do back off and pull out of life a little bit, you find yourself lacking. You find yourself longing. You, all of a sudden, when people will say, listen to this, yeah, give me freedom. I'll, I'll, I'll take that challenge. But there's always this scenario. The more people I talk about, they just feel like there's something that they need to fulfill themselves now that they don't have a schedule. And I, I, I've read about Maslow. You know, We know about Maslow through the hierarchies and he says that we have an instinct in us to serve the tribe, no matter, you know, we haven't quite gotten rid of that instinct where we just want to serve the tribe. We want to do something for others. We want to, and we have this need. I find that to be true. And so maybe this is something I've done to serve the tribe. Maybe I put some of my own suffering, like, you know, you put your 18 hour days in. That's, you know, that's, that's admirable. But at the same time, it comes at the price of suffering for you, doesn't it? And so, yeah, there's, there is a challenge to life. You know, you don't get to be, have these big uncommon goals without big uncommon 
inputs, you know, sowing and reaping. So is the book something that I had to do? Yeah, it, it really was. I really felt like I didn't have a choice not to write this book after it was over. I was definitely intending for my son to have a little bit more preparedness for life than I did. And so if I could ease that first and foremost, that was my number one goal. So you talked about big uncommon goals and you freed yourself up from the nine to five. You've written this incredible book. What next? What's your next big uncommon goal? (laughs) Yeah. What's the next uncommon goal now? This is where the break is in my life, right? Like everything was structured right up until now. So now I wrote the book and what I find myself now is standing in front of uh, microphones, things like this that I wasn't prepared for, to be honest with you. You know, sometimes when you, you, you accomplish the goal, there's a now what transition of life. I would say that I'm slightly in that. I, I, did you ever watch, like you're, you're my age, I think, so you might, the young people that do these podcasts don't understand this uh, as much. Did you ever watch the movie, The Thornbirds? I haven't watched it. I know it, but I haven't watched it's it. An, it's an oldie. So Richard Chamberlain and everything. But they had a great parable. You speak of parables. They had a parable of a bird that, that left its nest as a baby. And its whole life was to find this thorn tree. And it finally, years later, found the perfect thorn tree where it perched. And it sung the, the, the best song it could possibly sing. And while it was singing, it got impaled by a thorn. And that thorn even increased its voice so loud that everything stopped and everything listened to this thorn bird sing its song and it outsung everything. And then it died. And I've always identified it with this parable that sometimes I think we have a song and it's just our job to sing it. Now is my song, the wealthy gardener? Maybe it is. And so now maybe I just go on podcast with you and maybe there's a person out here that likes, would would hear my song and maybe it would help them. Maybe that's all that's left. I don't know. I I don't have it figured out beyond this point. I can tell you that. So I read two or three books a week and I'll tell you, you've got some real chops as a writer. Any interest in writing another book? Oh God. Now you're talking about the contribution again. To be honest with you, it's too fresh to me because I... That book to me was like you in medical school. It's not healthy for me. You know, you, you go, you see like Robert Greene. Robert Greene writes these books and he fell over with a, a, an arm that he can barely move. He, he goes through strokes. That's me. I, I don't, I'm not a healthy writer. And so I'm not prepared yet to say yes. There might be a workbook. God, if there was, if there was ever a book that's being asked for, it's called The Wealthy Gardener's Son. Everybody wants to but I'm not ready, man. I, I'm, I'm not ready to go back to medical school like you did. You know, that's how it feels like to me. It's terrible. So John Sephoric, I truly enjoyed reading The Wealthy Gardener. If people are interested in learning more about you or the book, where can they find you? You know what I suggest is that this is your crowd. So I, I imagine under here, you'll have a link that comes over to my page. I'll make a dedicated page about the things that we've talked about today so that you'll see the life lessons that we're talking about, the principles. I don't have any upsells. I don't have any courses for sale. Go down on the bottom of this, look for the, uh, the link to the page. It's educational only. And uh, maybe that's, that's all we need to talk about right there. All right. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank John Zephoric for writing this wonderful book, The Wealthy Gardener, and for being on the show. That's a wrap. Thank you, Doc G. 
You wore me out. One of the greatest things about the Earn and Invest community is the ability to meet and communicate with and really get to know people who are very different from me and who have opinions that are different from mine. One of the places we do this is at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. That's www.facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. And we have tons of conversations there about finances, life, politics. And I will tell you that sometimes we all disagree. And in fact, it's a place where we can come with diverse opinions and discuss sometimes difficult topics. And as you guys all know, these have been a very difficult last few weeks in our country. And I say they're a difficult few weeks, but for many of us, this has been a very difficult few decades or even centuries. As we look at the struggles that people of color have gone through, it's caused a series of protests around the United States decrying police brutality and the state of the world today. I'm going to have on in a moment a guest who took the time out and went and took pictures of one of these protests. And I think it's a really interesting conversation, but I will note that this guest, Alex Feliz, my friend, is one of those people who I met through this community who has opinions and ideas that are very different from mine. And I like to celebrate those opinions He's one of those guys that I can really talk to about what we think about the world, and we can disagree and yet still have a great conversation. And I think that's really important nowadays. It's very easy to look at the people giving their opinions and find everything wrong with what they say. But, but... I think if we're going to move forward in this world together, if we're going to fight all the bad things out there, we mostly have to find a way to do it together. We have to find a way to do it with those people who think differently than we are. So take a listen to this discussion. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. This episode is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, if you're like me, you thought at one point in your life that having enough money would solve all of your problems, and guess what? It didn't for me, and it probably isn't for you. But you know what helps quite a bit? Therapy. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It definitely did for me, and when I used BetterHelp, I found that I was learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowered me to be the best version of myself, and it's not for just those people who've experienced major trauma. You might be like me. Maybe you got to the point where financially you were successful, and yet you still found that life's problems hadn't been all solved. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash E-A-R-N. So we're back with the man who writes at Broke as a Choice. He is a real estate maven. He's also the chief potster on the internet. Of course, I'm talking about Alex Scott Felice. Alex, welcome back. How are you? Always good to see you, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. These are strange times. And I know you're like a majorly gregarious guy. You like to get out there and be with the people. How have these last few months been with you being at home most of the time? Horrible, mostly horrible. Um, I'm a very social guy. I uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. You and I both, I met you at a conference. I, I met you at a conference, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we met we at FinCon originally. Yeah. Yeah. So we hang out at conferences and, um, the conversation about introvert extrovert inevitably comes up at these conferences because some people can handle it better than others. Some people, um, are, uh, get energy by people and some people are drained of energy by people. And, um, I am now of the, I've always known that I'm a high extrovert, but now I'm of the opinion that all of my energy comes from people. And so now that I've been isolated, it's been uh, horrible would be, would be a gross understatement. And I feel like almost you can feel this rising tension in our nation about the coronavirus, about our opinions, about first our economy, and now about the racial divide. But I also feel like our tension is just growing because people need to be amongst other people. And when you isolate people like this, you can just feel people's pressure rising, so to speak. Yeah, I wonder. Well, I said from the very beginning about the coronavirus, they're like, well, stay at home and all this other stuff. And I'm like, you guys are underestimating human behavior. I mean, you can tell me about the threat, but that's an intellectual threat. I can't see it. I can't feel it. And so people are not going to respond, um, I, whether for good or for better or for worse, people are not going to respond that way. They're going to get pent up. They're going to get angry. And then I, you know, well, the debate is complicated, but all of a sudden people, uh, at the same time that we, we, ha- we hit the turning point of coronavirus, we had these riots and I just can't help but to think that the behavior is inexplicably linked. Like people are like, hey, I want to get outside. It's like, here's a really good reason. And now, you know, we're, we're protesting in the streets without masks largely, uh, or even with masks, right? We're touching, we're, we're, clo- we're not doing social distancing. So yeah, I think you, you really can't change the human behavior of wanting to be around people. Some people are happy staying home. Like my parents, for instance, they're, I was like, how are you handling it? They're like, everybody else is just living like we already live. You know, <laughs> we hate people. <laughs> but a guy like me, you know, you close down the restaurants, you close down bars, you close down the gym, um, you close down movie theaters, you close down social gatherings, concerts. I mean, I'm losing my mind. And I made fun of you in the introduction, but it's true. I do think of you somewhat as the chief potster. And I say that very affectionately because I think probably you and I 
It's hard to tell because I think you sometimes stir the pot just to stir the pot. But I suspect that we're not on the same necessarily side of the political spectrum all the time. But I find that I can disagree with you and yet still love you at the same time, which unfortunately we've been seeing on the Internet that that's not always so easy to do. So, you know, I I am a pot stirrer, but I'm also a contrarian. Um, And so my job is always to. Well, I think I said this on your show last time. I hate extremes. I hate extremes. And so I will stir the pot, but I try to bring, my job is to piss everybody off. Now it's very difficult to piss everybody off. So what I found myself doing, and I have a big, I have a big article. I talked to Mindy Jensen about this for an hour last night. My, it feels like my role now is unity uh, because one, it's, it's, it's necessary. And two, it's, it's the, the narrative is extremism. Um, and so my job as a contrarian is to, I am now the peace, the bear bringer. I'm trying to be the bringer of peace. I don't, I don't feel particularly weird about stirring the pot during these times. I don't know. It's a very, it's, it's a very weird time. I think uh, I also uh, between um, now and on January 1st, uh, I think a lot of it is just uh, practice for mobilizing the base for election season. I love this contradiction between pot stirring contrarianism and actually bringing unity And it makes me think a lot about how I see you in our community. So we're all part of the broad personal finance community. And of course, there are all sorts of sub-segments of that community, right? There's real estate people, there's index investing people, there's entrepreneurs. So there's lots of different segments. I love to watch people create in this space. And there are people like you who create by creating content about personal finance, but you've also brought something a little bit more artistic to the table also. One of the things I recognized about you first after meeting you at FinCon, I believe it was 2018, is after you put out a blog post with some wonderful photography. And it was this great marriage of creativity and personal finance. When did you get interested in taking pictures? Uh, this has been a long journey for me, actually. And it's 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 not done. It's still, I think, incubating. Um, I got into photography in 2015, 16, somewhere in there. I, I needed a hobby. I was bored. Somebody told me along the way, I'm, I've, I've been saying this for years now. Somebody told me along the way, if you want to ha- be happy in life, you need three hobbies. One to make you money, one to keep you in shape, and one to keep you creative. And so a lot of people in the personal finance community have the two, the money and the fitness often. But the creative one escapes people, escapes me. I don't consider myself a creative person, but it's one of those things where you'd be surprised if you work at it, what you can produce. And so I was doing houses and I kind of liked photography. I needed something. So I said, let me, I can take pictures of houses. Let me try that way. And it grew. It grew. I like cars. I'm a car guy for life. So I started taking pictures of cars and then it was like, you know, I try to take pictures of people. I'm not good at people, but what I am good at is telling stories. And so it turned into this like, oh, I'll go hang out with you while you do your thing and I'll take pictures of it. And then it grew into events somehow events and then so the conference was like i'll just go there and take pictures and see and then i tell stories because the pictures aren't that good and uh <laughs> and but and so it was a blend you know it's a blend of blogging and pictures and then so eventually it turned into like well the, the most recent is these protests and i said um for man it's a that's a whole podcast like there's a whole lot that there's a lot to dive into there but what i didn't want to do is, is what so many people are doing right now which is well, they're telling protesters how they should behave and then not going. And I find that to be 
vicarious, you know, empty. It's keyboard warrior. It's, it's, it's slacktivism. And so I was like, if you want to protect businesses from getting looted, then go this with the business and stand there. And if you don't have the guts to do it, or even, you know, if you don't have the guts to do it, or maybe you're sensible and you don't want to do it, I understand that. Okay. But then you're not, if you're not going to go and defend it, who's going to, you know? So I was like, so I say all that to say, like, I'm not, I wasn't going there to defend against looters, but I, I did want to go there. I, I also didn't want to go there and, um, you know, so many people are saying, well, the, it's just riots. It's just angry mobs. It's just this. It's just that. And I was like, well, that's not what I saw. And I was there. I saw it's much more complicated than that. I love this story of you as a storyteller. And the reason why is when I saw those pictures from the 2018 FinCon, I was like, hmm, this is really cool because I was there and I saw your pictures and I dug them. Then I met you again at 2019 FinCon and I saw you taking pictures and I was already excited for them to come out before the conference was over. So I am, you know, browsing through Facebook and Alex Scott Feliz puts out, hey, I'm going out to take pictures of the riots slash protests. Anyone want to come with? And I immediately was engaged because I, as one of the people who knows you, knew that I was actually going to get the straight dope. Like I was going to get exactly what's happening. And in our information society, we are so overrun by opinions fact and then non-fact it's so hard to know what's really happening so when i saw you doing this i was like okay now i'm gonna actually see what's going on and i knew you were going to tell a story and i knew that the images you would create would be stunning. I just knew it after seeing the other things you did. So I was waiting for these pictures to come out. And when the blog post did, I have to tell you, I was not let down at all. You captured some amazing footage of what was going on. I really felt like I was there. So I, uh, I shoot wide angle. And uh, this is a kind of a photography nerd thing. But when you shoot wide angle, that means you have to really get close to things. And that's kind of my specialty. And you know me, I'm, I'm not timid in person at all. I'm very, I'm in it. I like to be around it. I carry that camera around for three or four days straight. You've seen it. Um, sometimes I even take them out to the bars and whatnot, you know, and I'll get in people's face and I'll, it, it, you get used to it, but I, it works. I get good cameras and pictures. And so, um, yeah, I was in that, that, that I was in the mix deeply. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, it's, look, it's Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's not, um, New York City. It's not Seattle. It's not Chicago. It's not some of the places where the um, anarchy is much worse. It's just this little town. And um, I didn't feel afraid. I, I didn't feel anything. Look, I've been to Afghanistan twice. Okay. I didn't feel so worried about going downtown to, uh, to a, a little, a little mayhem. Uh, <laughs> and so that was a little bit of my advantage as well. But I'll tell you the people there were the nicest people in the whole wide world to me. And I wanted to tell that story straight dope. Like you said, it's very difficult to do it while acknowledging that whatever you say is going to get ripped by both sides as par- as polarizing. And I, I think I walked that line pretty good while telling a story and saying, this is what it is without including my narrative and my politics. And I don't, I just wanted to be there and I wanted to give my perspective without, I, I don't get paid for it. So everybody else you read, they're getting paid for clicks or, or selling pictures or selling story. So I didn't get paid. So I could give you something straight. I think I did a pretty good job about that. And I'm very grateful for the, um, for the compliment. I, I didn't know that many people read it. So thank you. 
The website is brokeisachoice.com. The post is called Fayetteville, North Carolina protests, Fayetteville, NC protests. Let's talk about some of these images because some of them really are stunning. I want to begin with the one in which you started the post. So you used it as the image for the post. This is a picture of a line of police in full garb and helmets and then standing right across from them are protesters. And I have to say, you know, these pictures are made more stunning by the fact that this is during the coronavirus pandemic. So everyone is wearing masks. And it adds a certain subtle extra quality to the pictures because people are pseudo anonymous. Was it a little strange seeing everybody in these masks and covered up? Uh, the, I look at the mask thing is not new around here. People have been wearing masks now for a month and a half, two months. So I wasn't wearing a mask. Um, I have some, but I don't wear them really. I only wear them for, you know, funny pictures. <laughs> Sorry to my mask. Uh, you know, uh, the people who are pro, super pro mask, uh, you know, the cops aren't wearing masks in that picture. The cops, the people who are supposed to tell you that you're supposed to wear a mask. Yeah, they're not wearing masks. So I see some I, shields, but not masks. Yeah, they got, oh, they got, I'll tell you, the one thing I did notice is that they are, the police are incredibly, hilariously equipped, well-equipped. Extremely, that was a small army that showed up for a couple of, for, for 150 people or maybe 200 people. Uh, I thought it was, I thought it was ironic that they would show up with such a militarized force to a protest about over policing. <laughs> there's a, you know, there's a, a, a meme going around on the internet about this idea that the hospitals, that the doctors going into the hospital have much less equipment and are struggling for the right protective equipment, whereas the police who show up to these protests are fully decked and garbed with the highest quality state-of-the-art equipment. It's a strange juxtaposition of what's happening in our, in our lives right now. Yeah, and it's complicated, right? Because, well, how much of the coronavirus was media-driven and how much of it was real? And the same thing was the, with the protests now, although the protests, people are really showing up in cities and really standing around and, and sometimes they're really wrecking some stuff. So, uh, and the, the policing thing is like a byproduct, right? That's been going on for years. So it's like the coronavirus shows up and they're like, oh, we got these hospitals overburdened because we're not used to these giant, um, these giant influxes of patients. But the police have been militarized because we've been throwing money at them through, you know, basically it's redistribution of, it's, it's the same thing they do to the military. Like during peacetime, you just, you get people paid. Um, and so it's a similar process with the military. It's like, let's throw money at this because, well, we got money, right? And they want to practice and whatnot. And who knows what might happen, right? And it looks good and people feel safe and they're all equipped. But now we're seeing the results of, you know, I don't know how long, 15, 20 years of throwing federal funds at small towns. Uh, they showed up, there was an armored car there. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it was, it, it was a very interesting, uh, it was a very interesting uh, moment. Another picture that caught my eye was a lady walking down the street, an African-American female with a, um, flannel checkered hoodie on her arms in the air with one you know a cell phone in one hand and really walking down what appears to be almost an empty street it's a strange thing in the middle of the day to see these streets without cars and mostly just people kind of you know all over the street as opposed to the normal traffic we're used to 
So there was two protests that day. There was a day and a night. And the, um, well, the day one was, in my opinion, it was the peaceful, planned, mostly publicity stunt. The mayor was there. I got a great picture of the mayor. Yeah, I'm looking um, at that picture as we speak. It's a beautiful yeah. picture of Mayor Mitch Colvin um, talking yep. on the loudspeaker. And uh, yep. you got, that looks like a really close up. I don't know if that was just your lens or if you were actually that close to him when you took that picture. Yeah, that was a, that was a little bit farther away. I shot that with a little bit longer lens. That was probably 10, 15 feet away from him. Um, uh, but that was a, you know, they shut down the main street on a Saturday afternoon, which was very weird because it's like, you know, the town, there's 450,000 people in Fayetteville. Uh, Metro, that's the biggest, that's the biggest road in the city. So it was very weird to be walking down at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. Uh, they shut it down. Um, we walked probably a quarter, half a mile maybe, and then walked back. It wasn't, it was too, um, well, it was very uh, orchestrated. It was very well coordinated and planned and the police were on board and everybody was having a, a you know, it was a nice statement. Um, but look, I, again, I don't know how you said earlier, we, we don't agree on political ideologies all the time. And I, I hope I don't agree with everybody all the time, but um, you know, uh, the peaceful protest was fine and nice. And then the one at night was rowdy. And then this, the city got scared and sent everybody on lockdown and curfew. And that's still ongoing and this and that. And so I think to myself, I'm of the opinion that the government should be afraid of the people. So in my opinion, the scary protest worked and the day protest was a nice gesture. And I'm all for peaceful protesting. Uh, but I just don't think they're that as effective. And seeing both of them and seeing the reactions to both of them, I, I, you know, that's my opinion. Talking about the scary protesting, I do see some pictures you had here of armed participants. Now, I'm not talking about the police force, but it looks like there were some armed protesters. Is that right? Well, shouldn't they be? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. You were there. Um, the, during the day there was, there was some armed protesters and there was no, there was no violence to be found. So, uh, I think it was a statement more than anything. And, you know, we live in a country, look, you know, I'm, here's my opinion about guns. Like there's no reason that anybody should own an AR 15. There's no, absolutely no reason for that. Unless the government has them, which they do. So you know, nobody got shot. Nobody was shooting guns. It wasn't, but they were, they had, they had guns there. They were flaunting them. Yes. And, um, I'm okay with that. That's second amendment. That's, that's a good, that's a good thing to have. I'd much, I'd much rather have that than everybody without guns and the cops still have guns. And again, that's my opinion. Not everybody's going to agree with it, but, uh, nobody, nobody, there was not that much. There was not that much violence. There was not, uh, there was, it wasn't mayhem. It wasn't chaotic. There were some people with guns. That's their right to do so. It's legal here. Um, the cops showed up with way, 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 way more. So I don't know, make that of you, make up that of you will, of what you will. As you talk about the fact there wasn't much chaos, but there apparently was a little bit, you have one of the most stunning pictures by far, no question, is the picture of the fire with the kind of half or, you know, mostly burnt flag at the forefront. Tell me the story of that picture. It's beautiful. So thank you. Yeah, I, I got lucky with that. I should have gotten paid for that one. I should have gotten paid. That's a that's a good one. I I, I need to I need to I need to retroactively get paid for that picture. I think somehow <laughs> uh, I need to take it down and sell it. Um, that's a Time so, yeah. Magazine pick. That's like a that's a cover of Time Magazine picture is what that is. Yeah, it came out very good. Thank you. It came out good. Better than I I knew when I took it too. I was like, oh, that's gonna be good. So the deal is we're at this little market square, and so the market square has a controversial history because it was 
uh, well, they slave, they slave traded there years ago. So it's been a, this is not the first time that this place has been a point of contention for the local community. Um, you know, when they were taking on the Confederate statues, this thing, this market, market house came up a few times. And so they have a little museum up top um, with some of the history in it. And it was the target of vandalism. And they tried to set it on fire, but the place is brick. So, I mean, they're not geniuses that are doing this, right? They're just, <laughs> little, just a little bent out of shape, and, which I understand. And so somebody got a flag and you can, there's some other pictures of like a little tree burning, but there's just not that much to burn. So they're trying, right? They're trying to cause a little mayhem. They're trying to send a message. I don't think, you know, burn the flag is another one. It's like, dude, nobody, I don't like it. I'm not pro, like, what I does I'm not pro flag burning. I like, I'm a veteran. I like America, you know, I'm, I'm pro America. Um, but I also respect people's first amendment rights. This is well-established. Like it doesn't like, go ahead. You burn that flag. I'm not gonna, I'm certainly not gonna go in there and stop you. Right. So I took a picture of it. Uh, it looks wet because the building had been a fire. So it had the water sprinkler system was coming out. And so the whole place has like a sheet of water on it. And I got real close. I mean, I'm probably five feet away from that thing. I'm shooting it wide. Uh, I got lucky. It was very interesting. Um, it was a very interesting shot. Not much post-production. I mean, that's pretty much straight out of camera. It was, it was, I don't know. It was a fantastic shot. I'm yeah. I, I really do suggest people go to brokeasachoice.com. Take a look at this picture. The blog post is the Fayetteville NC protests. And I, I mean, it's just, it's a stunning picture. It's a picture in the forefront. You have the American flag. It's burnt maybe a half to two thirds the way through. You've got tendrils of flames coming behind it. And as Alex was saying, on the ground, you see kind of a, a flood of water coming towards you and just kind of the smoky orangish blackish background uh, really creates an image and this gets back a little bit to what i was saying before you took these random vague images i had of what this must have been like and made them concrete by going out there and capturing all this fayetteville north carolina is that a hotbed of protests it wouldn't be a state or a city that I would just pull up and say, boy, I'd expect to see some, some big protests there. No, I don't think that it's going to continue on much here. I think that, um, people were there. If you go down the street right now, there's people out that are it's a very small, small amount. I think the bulk of it is over. I think, um, I don't know how it was orchestrated on the, you know, you know how these things are, right? Like somebody's somebody's has a vested interest in making this happen. I mean, there's no reason why the protests happen nationally, um, basically over, over two days without somebody coordinating this. So I don't know what the deal is. I'm not, a, I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying like, you know, it, how did it happen all, all, all at one time? So, uh, but my guess is, you know, it's going to continue on in the big cities and, and the smaller cities. It's, it's, it's probably over. We, we have, a, it's a military town, right? Fort Bragg's here. And so the military, the day one, you know, they teach you, um, nobody's black, nobody's white, everybody's green. And you kind of get that beat into you. The military is very diverse, very diverse. Um, and down here at Fort Bragg, it's very diverse. So like, you know, all of my business partners are black. I don't, it's not a, it's not a, um, the racial divide is, is not that um, palpable here, in my opinion, in my experience. Um, so I don't think that it'll continue here. I think it was a, and I kind of knew that going in. I was like, this, this is not going to go on. This is going to be a one and done kind of thing. Uh, I went to the next night, actually, or two nights later, I went again and it was a peaceful ending where the protesters and the police kneel together. And I have that on, I took those pictures too, because I wanted to give a fair assessment of like, look, it's not just mayhem, right? There's, there's, 
some acquiescence of progress here. Um, and so I captured those, uh, I called it, you know, fatal protest number two. Um, so I have those as well. Uh, but, you know, it's not as sensationalized, so they're not as punchy, though, <laughs> which is the problem we have with the media in general. Um, that's our fault. We only like craziness. And it seems like we have two diverse pictures of what's going on. As you said, there are plenty of places where police are coming together and rallying with people and getting down on bended knee and being very much a part of the community. And then you have these other, what I hope are more isolated situations where you have more brutality, you have, you know, there was an infirmary station set up for one of the protests that the police destroyed. You have these kind of sad stories in the midst of also uplifting ones. And maybe that's a good explanation of what it feels like to be American right now is that this is all of this is us, like the good, the bad, the ugly, it's, it's all of us. And uh, to bring that together and have it feel cohesive is really hard right now. Well, look, if I, I felt, I, I don't look, 2016 was the same way. People were incredibly divisive, except we don't remember what we do, were divided about in 2016 so much. Right. I mean, <laughs> so I urge people to give people pa- their fellow man and woman patience because you basically, you have two choices right now. People are doing this thing where they're like, I can have perfect friends or mortal enemies. And it's like, dude, that's just not a good way to go through life. It's just, it's a very difficult way because, well, I hate to say it, you have no perfect friends. I don't think. I'm not perfect. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but, <laughs> but the, you can, you can either live your life with perfect friends and mortal enemies or imperfect friends, right? Like I have people that I grossly disagree with and it's like, dude, I just can't, un- I can't not appreciate the spectrum of this person's individuality as a whole, because I don't agree with 3% of it or even 30% of it. And I think at this moment right now, and I'll tell you what the media is bent on dividing us. And the government is bent on dividing us. And, you know, it's going to work. I got to tell you, I'll tell you right now, I, learned, I read a lot of history. I think you know that. I read a lot of history. And it's going to work largely, but it's only, we have to accept it. Like, we, we have to participate in that. So I just, I told you from the beginning, like, my message right now is unity. And I'm telling you, like, be accepting of people because what you do, really don't want to do is ostracize somebody. And then in November 5th, you're like, what was I mad at so-and-so for? Because now it's over. And it's like, dude, just... Give people a little patience right now. You know, wait, wait a week, wait a month before you unfriend them. You know, give people a little, give people a little room to be wrong. Yeah, I, I love this idea, especially I've been thinking myself a lot about this idea of imperfect allies. You know, there's a lot of calling each other out right now for slights and perceived slights and racism. And I'm not sure if that's racism and how should it be? And Granted, I think a lot of us have these biases too and are coming to terms with them. And sometimes we're not coming to terms with them and it's showing and it's becoming very apparent. But, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, but, and this is, this is the big part because I think that, I think none of us are perfect and a lot of us are making mistakes. And so a lot of us have to now go back and deal with things that we maybe didn't know were there or didn't think we're an issue. And I think it's really important to do that. On the other hand, and this is my concern, there are true bad people out there. And it's going to take the rest of us 
together to combat those truly bad people. And let's say those truly bad people are 1% or 2% or 5% of our community. But if we can come together, the rest of the community, we're going to do much better, which means that if someone is acting in a way you don't love or a spouse's opinions you don't like, or frankly needs to improve or better understand their own implicit biases, alienating those people is not going to help you in the end. Like we've got to find a way to be allies with those people that we all have to find a way even to educate ourselves better. We have to build more bridges because there are those few percent who really do want to do us bad and harm. And unless we can come together with those other people that we don't necessarily 100% get along with, we're not going to actually be effective at dealing with the people who will harm our country or who will harm parts of our country. Yeah. Um, part of this, uh, there's a great book on this called the coddling of the American mind that I recommend, especially if you have children, if you have children, that's a must read. Um, and it kind of talks about this. Um, and yeah, it's like, you know, you need allies to defeat the bad guys. If you, if you make everybody a bad guy, Dude, I mean, you got no chance, right? And then you're the only one who's virtuous, you and your three buddies who all agree on everything. Plus, goodness gracious, what a dull life. Hey, how about that thing? Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, well, no conversation needed. I mean, <laughs> so uh, yeah, the, the, the cancel culture is, um, is getting worse and it's going to continue. And I mean, look, there are, there are people here out there who are bad actors for sure. I personally have the, have the opinion that um, that's a very small percentage of people that genuinely mean malice. Um, people are selfish for sure. Uh, short-sighted, ignorant, all sorts of things that they don't know or want to be, but they are. Um, but people are instinctual animals. They can't often help it. And so I tried not, it's like, you know, it's like all the chicks that won't date me because I'm five foot seven. It's like, I'm not mad at you. How am I going to be mad at you? I can't help it. Right. So if you're an idiot, it's like, well, I try not to be hate you because you're an idiot. That's not a, that doesn't help anybody. And so it's like, look, I not to say, look, there are people you shouldn't be friends with. So if you have to unfriend somebody because they're toxic, like I get it, but you know, I don't know. I don't have the, all the best answers. I just, I, I know that divisiveness, like escalation doesn't lead to de-escalation ever. And so if you're making, it's like, you got to really decide, are you helping or are you hurting? Are you just, are you just picking sides? Are you just dividing the battle lines and then going to war? Or are you like, Hey, look, you know, can we find common ground? Um, and it's hard right now. I'm not saying like, you got to be a freaking monk to, to <laughs> go onto Facebook and, 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 and have peace. Now I can go on Facebook and have peace because I, I find peace and chaos. Like I love it. Um, but I appreciate more, I think than people's diversity than other people. I look at it and I'm like, Oh, that person's lost. I like, but I'll, I like them. I, I like what they're saying their business. Like I like it. I appreciate that about them. You know, I can't, always listen to it, but I, I can't ostracize them just because they said, you know, this one thing that I don't like, especially when this one thing never had an impact on our friendship until two weeks ago. Right. Are they really secretly coveting like this evil secret or does the uh, news cycle know how to bring out polarizing extremes in our personalities about things that I'm sorry, I don't want to say don't matter because you know, black lives matters, matters, but like, remember, okay, here in North Carolina, we argued about, uh, the transgender bathroom bill. That was like the biggest, baddest, most important deal 
and people were unfriended because this, that, and the other thing. And now you never hear anything about it in the bathroom. It didn't change. And I'm like, dude, you know, we were unfriending each other because we didn't wear masks. Oh, you don't wear a mask. You know, you're, you, you don't, you're selfish. You don't appreciate other people. And now it's like, that was two weeks ago. And now nobody remembers. And so all I'd say is like, look, there's people you shouldn't be friends with, but take a little bit longer. Wait till after the news cycle to decide <laughs> because you don't want to be being used. Like the government has one tool, divide and conquer. They have one tool, divide and conquer. Remember that. And people like Alex Feliz are into unity. And that's what is clearly obvious. Until... But- until. Until unity is popular, and then I will be divisive. <laughs> <laughs> because he's a contrarian, of course. <laughs> well, Alex, thank you for coming on. And more importantly, thank you for going out there, bearing witness, taking pictures, and showing what's really happening in the world today. I always appreciate your input. I love to agree and disagree with you. Uh, And I think that's part of the fun of it. I think you're a great asset to the personal finance community and to other communities outside of personal finance. And I'm happy to call you my friend. Thanks for coming back on, buddy. Thank you, buddy. Always to talk to you. I want you to listen today because we have a lot of terrible questions. <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. We do with the bumper. I'm just trying to tie in the show. Um, let me just think one more second if I want you to say anything more. Perfect. That's all I need. So I didn't beat you up too much, I hope. I'm always exhausted here. You know, I'm like this introvert who's made for writing. And so, yeah, I mean, thank you. You know, you're. When I say terrible, I mean that as a compliment. So, yeah, I, I, that was yeah, no, no, fantastic. I don't take offense. I, right. I, um, I, I try to ask deeper questions. So it's not uncommon for floridly extroverted people at the end of our interview to be like, "Oh, all right, I'm a, let me rest for a second. It's yeah. just I really do want to kind of get at the most of who you are because I want to celebrate. I mean, that's it's an amazing accomplishment. The book you wrote is an amazing accomplishment. It's packed with information and great quotes and real thought. And so I don't I want don't want to do a disservice by not diving deep enough. You know what I'm I mean? I'm impressed you got through it in a in a weekend, man. You must be a speed reader. Well, I I'd spend a lot of hours doing it, but I, I don't let but I wouldn't I would never interview you unless I felt like I had a good enough hold on your book and what you're about. Because otherwise I don't want to ask you the vanilla questions that are, are not gonna reveal anything about you or what you have to say. I cannot tell you how rare you are. You're never on this side of the microphone, so I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well I do I mean I, I do podcasts all the time. I'm podcast guests all the time. So I get to see right. what you're saying too. Yeah, but man, you I mean you dove into it, you know, and I'm I'm telling you that's so appreciated from a guest standpoint. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, no, I want to I want to ask questions that really relate to your stuff. So it was a pleasure. And I, I really did enjoy the book quite a bit. And right, I, I wasn't you. joking. Like I started thinking, I'm like, all right, how can I improve my podcast? All right, what am I doing? Am I really putting in those impact hours? And I really started yeah. thinking about because it's true. Once you run out of the financial stuff to worry about, if you're lucky, if you get the financial stuff kind of going and settled, you then have a choice. And a lot of these lessons really speak to what a meaningful life is and it's really easy to think a meaningful life is sitting around doing nothing but anyone who's accomplished something or spent most of their life accomplishing things will not find meaning in not accomplishing anymore there's a fulfillment to it i agree you know and i i I 
I love it when I hear a person say it makes them think. It's one of the highest compliments you can get for a book, really. I, one of the Early on, a, a president of a college just wrote me back and said, I'm a speed reader, but it took me 13 hours to get through this book because I'd have set it down and look out the window and think. It's like, wow, maybe this, yeah. maybe this is worthy, you know? You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.